Good morning once again. If you have your Bible with you this morning, you can preemptively flip to Judges chapter 13. We have made it to the top, or in some sense to the bottom here, of the book of Judges. This will be our final week going through the book of Judges as we um, approach a character who a lot of people uh, are familiar with. His name is Samson. Um, Samson is going to do a phenomenal job of, for one final time, just driving home this reality that we are very much, outside of Christ, a broken people, a sinful people, in need of God's grace. But even as there is that bad news we see throughout this Old Testament book of Judges, the good news that God has made a way, that God is good, that God is grace-filled, that God is faithful. Um, Each story throughout the book of Judges, each judge or leader, we see it kind of gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse, and there's more and more sin on display in the life of that leader and in the life of even the Israelite culture, and there's much that we can take away from that, Uh, even as we think about our own lives, our own culture, our own struggles and needs. Um, I was thinking this week about the Jerry Springer show. Uh, how many of you guys know Jerry Springer Show? I was shocked to find, maybe you didn't know this, let me bless you with this, the Jerry Springer Show has run for 27 years in a row, and it just ended in 2018. I was thinking that was a thing from my childhood, which it was, but it has had a long legacy, if you will, here in the United States. And you know, the, the general theme or the topic for any given moment of, of the Jerry Springer Show is something like, you know, my grandmother's ex best friend's roommate was my son-in-law's lover that I met when I was drinking while in jail under the influence of drugs. That's, that's sort of a good common title for a Jerry Springer episode, right? I mean, I, I know we've all, spent lots of time in Jerry Springer, right? There's a lot of judges that has the same feel. The reality of people's sin, the culture's sin, even the leaders, the Christian leaders are doing all kinds of like really bad, really messed up, really questionable stuff. And Samson maybe drives that home more than any other leader that we have yet seen. Um, His story is the longest in all of Judges. It's going to cover all of Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. Um, So if you're not familiar with Uh, Samson and his story. Let me just give you a quick run through um, before we kind of pull three applications from his overall story that I I think will serve us well as we seek to follow Christ today. Um, So at the beginning of the story, we get this reality that Israel um, has completely rejected God yet again. And that is this continual cycle that we see in Judges. Um, But this time, God is going to call a judge or a human savior named Samson but he's going to call him from before he is even born. And so this is the first and the only time that it happens this way. Samson is going to be the last judge that we see throughout the book, and he has this unique call. One of the things that God does in calling Samson before his birth, when he's speaking to Samson's mother, is that he couches his life in what's called a Nazarite vow, that Samson is going to be required by God to carry this Nazarite vow. And that type of a vow in the Old Testament was somewhat common, but it basically meant three things. It meant that you would never drink uh, alcohol, it meant that you would never touch anything dead, and it meant that you would never cut your hair. And those were essentially outward symbols of this inward relationship that this guy was going to have with God. And so Samson is born, and Samson grows up, and um, he quickly reveals that he is not going to be what Israel ultimately needs. 
Um, he, among many things, tends to prefer uh, enemy Philistine women um, to the women of Israel, and he gives himself over to all kinds of sin, gives himself fully over to the physical enemy, uh, the nation of Philistia, and causes all kinds of issues. But at the same time, you see this promise, that is, that God works through broken people. Even though Samson is a wreck, God's promises are still fulfilled even through this broken vessel. And so we're told that the Spirit of God comes upon Samson multiple times in his life and gives him what he's most commonly known for, which is this supernatural strength that he displays to ultimately protect the nation of Israel from their physical enemies. So there's kind of two major episodes that we think of when we think of Samson. The first is um, he grabs a jawbone in one moment, the jawbone of a donkey, and kills a thousand Philistines with this supernatural strength. Another episode is this moment when he has just been hanging out with a Philistine prostitute, and before he leaves the area, they try to kill him. They lock the doors of the city or the gates of the city, and he, with his strength, rips off the gates of the city and drags them out of the city and is able to leave under his own power. Then there's a third moment that's kind of maybe the most famous um, when it comes to Samson, and that is his relationship with his mistress Delilah, yet another prostitute from the Philistines. Um, She openly asks him, what is the source of your strength? And despite what we can look at that and go, why would you tell her? The scripture says that after much nagging that eventually he was willing to share with this girlfriend of his that if he breaks his Nazarite vow, that God's power will be be gone from him. And And the way to do that is to shave his head, to cut his hair, to break that Nazarite vow or promise. In a shocking move, Delilah cuts his hair while he sleeps calls in the Philistines, they capture him, gouge his eyes out, and throw him into jail. And we assume this is basically the end of Samson and his leadership or role with Israel. The final moment in his story, Judges chapter 16, we fast forward to him being brought out to a Philistine party that is in their temple for Dagon. They place him against two pillars, lock him up to mock him and just be entertained by him. And he prays and he asks God, give me the strength one last time. And the scripture says that he was able to push down the two pillars that held up the temple. And the temple crumbled, killing him and all of the enemy Philistines in the area. Thus ends the jaded story of Samson. I want to give you from this crazy story three, I think, really important, really powerful applications for our lives Today And I just want to be real clear up front. Let me give you the bottom line here of this, this whole story, this whole episode. And that is this, that the stories of Samson's birth, of Samson's life, and of Samson's death show us ourselves. And in particular, what it shows us is that we are weak people saved through faith in a strong Savior. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into these three applications this morning. Heavenly Father, we do recognize that you are good and you are strong, and Father, would you open our eyes to just place our our focus and our faith on you afresh this morning. Lord, um, it is not hard when we are honest to see that we are weak, that we make mistakes. There is much to look at at Samson's life and see his mistakes, but God, um, we cling to your grace even as we see ourselves in this story. 
Lord, we pray that you would teach us to trust more in you through your word today, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Number one, Samson's birth. Samson's birth story is going to show us our need for the birth of Jesus. Let's read just the first five verses that open this whole story. This is Samson's birth narrative, and see what kind of stands out here. The scripture says this, beginning in verse 1 of 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And, you, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The first thing we see right off the bat here is that without Jesus in the picture, this sin cycle or this sin spiral is permanent. And they cannot seem to change it outside of an intervention of a real Savior. So that cycle, as we've talked about before, begins with sin, that they, the Israelites forget God and, and they worship false gods. And then it leads ultimately to their own slavery, both in this case to the Philistines, but also spiritually as they give in to their idols, it brings nothing but death and destruction. That leads to supplication or prayer, crying out to God in repentance and saying, God, we've forgotten you once again. Please help us. Please save us which God responds to in salvation, and God will raise up this human judge to step in and help Israel. But we're going to see over and over again here, one last time, that the Israelites as a people obey for a little while, and then they turn right back to their old ways. Samson's birth is actually going to give us a whole bunch of hints here that God is ultimately bringing something new, that God is bringing something better, that God is bringing something permanent to fix what seems to be the permanent problem of sin in their lives. First, there's this, the, the Philistines themselves. The Philistines show us that the enemy of sin is real, and it's powerful, and it's deadly. We're told that they basically owned and oppressed the Israelites for 40 years. Uh, throughout Scripture, the, the number 40 is a number that means completion, final completion, it's the scripture's way of saying the Israelites are dead, that there is no spiritual hope in their current situation, and that the Philistines as a physical enemy are incredibly dominant. The Philistines were known to be really the first culture that figures out how to use um, iron weapons. And so because of that advanced technology, they really dominate everyone else around them, including the Israelites, for, for generations and generations. Um, they were known in particular for being cruel, particularly disgusting. Um, They're actually known for using said iron weapons to mutilate all of the ma male soldiers before they would execute them uh, after a battle. So you see that just the, the grossness and the terror that evil brings. The Philistines represent that. But secondly, if we look just at those five verses, something is missing. Something that we've seen in some form or another throughout all the other episodes within Judges, but now suddenly, did you see what was missing? 
there's no repentance. There's no comment of any kind where Israel cries out. There's no asking for help. There's no turning from sin. There is no repentance. They don't want God. And so what's got to happen here is what's got to happen in our lives. God's got to act. God's got to move. God's got to act first because he wants them, because he loves them. There's a reality here for us. Don't think of yourself as wounded by sin. Think of yourself as dead in your sin outside of Christ. The New Testament picks this exact reality up. In Ephesians chapter 2, it begins, the first three verses says this, clearly, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's bad news, but it illustrates that spiritually outside of Christ that we are dead. We see some more little uh, factors, though, that are helping us understand the big picture here. Third thing we see is the promise comes before the judge is even born. In the past, God would make the promise, and there would be a judge who God would call up, and that person would immediately step into the fray. But now we see this precursor that the Savior that they need cannot come from among them. That's a spiritual reality here, that the the Savior has got to be someone new, someone outside of among us. And so God calls that someone from before birth. I love this next one, though. You see that the promise comes to a woman who cannot on her own have children. God's promise is delivered by an angel. God's promise is to a woman who on her own has no hope. This is specifically because in the ancient world, a woman's security was really tied to her success in having children and in having male offspring. And so those sons were the closest thing to having a 401k, essentially, for women. And so she's literally in a difficult situation in that she cannot, and as far as we can see, is not going to be able to have children. No kids, no hope. But next we see God. God breaks through the impossible. God breaks through into the situation. God shows up and brings life and salvation to Israel out of what would seem to be impossible. You know, that's a, that's a reoccurring theme throughout the Old Testament as it continues to point us to this singular moment in human and in Bible history that we know that we need. If we go back far enough, we see a kid named Isaac who was born to Abraham and Sarai when they were in their 90s well beyond the ability to have children. And an angel of the Lord comes and promises and says, you will have a son, and through him I will save your people. And then God does it again through a child named Samuel. When God comes to the parents, Hannah and Elkanah, who themselves could not have children, and God says, I will give you a son. And Samuel goes up to be a great priest that leads all of Israel for a season. And then God does it again with another child named John the Baptist, and and God comes through an angel to Elizabeth and Zechariah and says, there is one coming, though you cannot have children, though you are barren, I will give you a child. And John the Baptist, literally we know from the New Testament, prepares the way for Jesus, ultimately leading us up to who? This moment where Jesus himself 
is promised, beginning the New Testament. And where did the promise begin? It begins with an angel who comes to a woman, a woman who could not have children. But for Mary, it was a whole different level of impossible, right? Mary, we are told clearly in Scripture, was a virgin who became pregnant by the miraculous power of God through the Holy Spirit. This is a miracle. And so Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 tells us this child, this miracle child, will save his people from their sins. Now think back to Samson. What did it say there in, in verse 5? It says, he shall begin to save Israel. Wait a minute, what do you mean begin? Isn't Samson the last judge in the whole of the book of Judges? Yes, he is. So is Samson going to be able to finish the job? No. Well, who's going to do it? All of the book of Judges is pointing us to the one Savior who will come and will finish bringing real salvation. This is so important, guys. God is bringing salvation to a people who don't seek Him, who don't want Him, who have nothing to offer Him, and who are in reality hopeless. This is so important for all of us because no matter who you are or what you've done or what you think you've done wrong, there is grace available to you from God who is reaching out and offering salvation to you. No matter what guilt you might carry, no matter what secret sins that you think nobody else knows, God knows and still out of love has sent a Savior for you. There is literally no sin that you can commit that is somehow so great that God cannot or will not forgive it and bring His grace to you. And so our hope is not in our ability to somehow straighten up and just do a better job. They try that over and over in Judges and it never works. Our hope is not and our ability to somehow fake uh, our obedience and create this outward persona that says, look at how good I am on the outside, and yet on the inside, we know the sin is still there. The problems are still there. The promise is from God, a son that can save in our weakness. Our hope is in God's grace and his choice to pour out his love for you. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at the next two verses. After verses 1 through 3 that tell us very clearly we are dead on our own, look at the life that's promised in verses 4 and 5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. So even though we get this, this picture of, of Samson being born, all about it is telegraphing us to the birth of the one true Savior. Number two, Samson's life story. Let's take a look briefly just at, at Samson's life, which again is a mess. But Samson's life story shows us our weakness and our need for faith in his strength. You know, Samson's biography, I think, if he had a biography, it would be titled something like, here are the top 10 ways to destroy your life and whatever good thing God wanted to do in your life. He makes mistakes over and over again. It would take us hours just to, to look at all of the different things that he does. But among his many Jerry Springer-style weaknesses, the guy is super impulsive. He compromises constantly, uh, and he's incredibly prideful. He makes it all about himself. So just thinking about this impulsive thing for, for a second, look at Judges 14 now with me. This is Judges 14, verse 1 and 2 that kind of kicks off Samson's adult story. 
Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Guys, let me just be real clear up front. This is not the way to win a woman's heart, right? Get her for me. Everything about the way that he's engaging that story, right, is he is treating this woman as a possession. But there's even more sin behind it. Clearly, he's not interested in her heart. He's going to treat her as an object. But even more so, he has chosen as his bride a member of the enemy who is herself a Philistine, which means she and her whole culture have totally rejected God. And that is who he has decided that he wants to partner in life with. Um, He's more concerned about marrying the enemy than he ever is about defeating them, which is what God has called him to actually do. He chooses or chases foreign women like we chase false gods. He chases foreign women the way that we chase false gods. Um, This is one of my favorite articles that I've seen in the last several years. It came out of ESPN, kind of a, a good commentary on culture. Let me just read you the title of this article. Philadelphia, my wife's hometown, Philadelphia is urging its residents not to swim in dumpsters after a rented trash receptacle was filled with fire hydrant water and transformed into a pool during a weekend block party. I love the picture. If you can get the mental picture here, I've seen the real picture. It is this massive, disgusting dumpster that they have filled with water, and there's literally people swimming in it with beach ball, the whole deal. Yes, it's hot. I get it. But they're swimming in a dumpster. This is what life looks like. When we begin to be impulsive, when we reject God's word, Judges 21-25 says that everyone acted as if there was no king, no God, and did what was right in their own eyes. When you become impulsive, when you live your life doing what is right in your own eyes, you will inevitably do the spiritual equivalent of swimming in a dumpster. That's what sin is, and that's what sin does. He's impulsive, but he's also compromising. He constantly compromises on what God has given him, God's good gifts, God's calling and instruction on his life. I'm going to give you the PG version of Exodus chapter 34, verse 16. It says, don't marry the enemy or your sons will become like them. Don't marry the enemy or your sons will become like them. Samson finds this, his first wife, his Philistine wife, in the town of Timnah. Now, that's an important detail because Timnah is not in Philistine territory. Timnah is a town in the center of Israel. What that tells you is that the entire Israelite culture has become a culture of total compromise on the Word of God. You live in a world and in a nation that in many ways is doing the same thing, that we have become a culture of compromise when it comes to the word and the truth of God and the message of God's salvation through Christ. This guy, Samson, thinks nothing of compromising on the Nazarite vow that God has given him from before his birth. So you remember there's the three things that he's basically not supposed to do just as an outward sign of his commitment to the Lord. He thinks nothing of blowing off all three. And so we see a couple different times where he basically heads to a beer keg party hosted by the Philistines. Um, And on another season, he's coming back from hanging out with his Philistine girlfriend, 
and he puts his hands in the carcass of a dead lion. Now, this lion is dead because by God's power and strength, he had killed it earlier, but it has been dead and decaying for a while, and bees have come by and started making honey in the carcass of the lion, and he just sticks his hand right in the dead animal, which, again, is kind of like swimming in the dumpster. He scoops out that honey and has a bite of that honey. But then the third part of it, he's soon going to hit that moment where he lets Delilah cut his hair off. And his strength, his connection, that outward symbol of his connection to God is removed. He compromises left on right on what he knows God has called him and gifted him with. You know, we also see his pride. And this one should really hit home for us. Um, If you read through this story in its totality, you're going to see Samson loves two words, I and me. He says over and over again, everything is about me. Everything is about his needs and his desires. And we only see twice in his entire life, as far as Scripture records, that Samson actually prays. You know, our prayer life is probably the best indicator of whose strength am I actually living by. Am I living by my strength or am I living by God's strength? If I'm living by God's strength, then out of that flows a life of prayer that says, God, I need your help your power, your wisdom, and your guidance. Delilah is going to ask him three times for the secret to his, his power. And uh, he's three times, he, he gives her a false answer, and eventually he tells her the truth. Of course, her agenda the whole time is to see Samson captured. But you see, this has got to be right, like the most destructive relationship of all time. He knows why she's asking, but he's so addicted to this relationship that he can't help but tell her the truth. And I think what's really going on here down deep, though, is an issue of pride. Samson has convinced himself that his strength is not a function of God's gifting in his life, but it's his own. So what's the big deal if somebody cuts his hair? Because he's begun to think in his own pride, it's about me, and it's about my strength. Of course, we see it doesn't work out. He's captured. They gouge his eyes out, and they chain him to a wheat grinder. Samson was supposed to be a follower of God. Samson was supposed to be a leader of God's people. But what did his life indicate? What do your words, what does your life indicate or communicate about where your strength comes from? Where does your strength, where does your hope, where does your help come from? I think as we hear this story, we tend to sort of automatically assume that, that the man Samson was like a, a world champion bodybuilder and he has semi-trucks for biceps and a massive six-pack. He's just this huge, super burly, strong guy. But you know, the scripture never actually says that. The scripture doesn't say anywhere that he physically demonstrated that strength. I think more than likely, Samson was actually an average-looking guy. Um, we know that he's an average guy and that he struggles with sins just like the rest of us. But the reality here is Samson was weak on his own. He needed God's strength to do the things that he was doing. This week, uh, New City had kind of an interesting gift and an opportunity. Um, We got to help financially support support, uh, Southwest Middle School. They brought in an author who did kind of a a book signing and shared his story with about 200 of the kids uh, in the library on Wednesday at the school. It was a super, super awesome moment. Um, But it was super humbling to be there and see. uh, His name's Rashad Jennings, and that, that name may or may not 
um, ring a bell. He's a former uh, NFL football player. So Rashad Jennings is sharing his testimony, um, and he says basically as a kid in high school, he was actually the fifth string running back, um, and he had literally never gotten in a game in his entire high school career. So his high school career is winding down. Um, he still has never gotten in a game, and he says, oh, and by the way, I had a 0.6 GPA, 0.6 GPA, which is contributing to him never getting on the field. Um, but one day, he found himself called into a game um, because the first string, second string, third string, etc., everybody that was supposed to play his position was injured. And so they said, hey, Rashad, jump in the game. So he jumps in the game, and he scores four touchdowns in 14 plays. And so there happened to be a college scout there, and this is sort of where his life begins to, to take off. Um, he goes on to play nine seasons in the NFL. After the NFL, he got his doctorate. Um, he won Dancing with the Stars, season 27. And um, he's now writing these New York Times bestsellers, basically preteen and kid books. But I love the message that he gave to the kids. Throughout his message, as he is at Southwest Middle School, he is telling all these kids, it is not about me. He's telling them, everything that I have, every gift that I have, every talent that I have, it was a gift given to me. There's a humility that comes. We know the Lord. During the Q&A time, the kids were asking him different questions, and one of the questions was, what's your favorite book? He paused for a second. He said, my favorite book is the Scriptures. And he just continued to share in every way that he possibly could that it was not about him, that it was about a gift from the outside. That's the humility that comes from God recognizing that I may be weak on my own, but my strength comes from the Lord. Um, if you've been in the CBR this week, on Wednesday, uh, we're in Acts chapter 12. So I was reading Acts chapter 12, and it just really hit me, this, this power of God thing. So if you happen to read Acts chapter 12, you remember that prayer comes in and we see God's power unleashed as God's people began to pray. Uh, the situation was the apostle James had just been executed simply for being a Christian by this guy, King Herod. And now the apostle Peter has been thrown in prison as well, and we assume his date for execution is coming up as well. Listen just to these couple verses in Acts chapter 12. This is verse 5 through 7. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is an impossible situation. They have no strength to bring to the situation, but by earnest prayer, the church responded to crisis. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. He's not getting out, is the point. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. I love that. Samson and Peter on their own are not chain breakers. They cannot do that. They are weak on their own, and by God's grace, they can freely admit that. But God who is powerful, God who is strong, can enter into that situation, and whatever that chain may be, it is God who breaks the chain. We see from Samson's life this reality that's so important for us that by God's grace, we can admit 
New City Church, as we go through life and as we're serving the community, as we're leading our family, as we're at work, as we're at play, whatever the situation might be, that by God's grace, I can freely admit that I am weak on my own. But at the same time, I can recognize fully that my strength is in God and God alone. And that's a gift. It's a joy. There's power there that only God can bring, and it's accessible. It's free. And we're told clearly, Old Testament and New, that the way that that takes place is through prayer. That God himself has made a way that he is available 24 hours a day. That I can call upon him, that my prayers might make no sense. That I might not know exactly what to say or feel like, man, if I start talking, I'm going to say something dumb. God's got it. God is strong enough to hear what you are crying out and take care of our needs. So we, we look to him. Third and finally, thinking about Samson and his death now. Samson's death story calls us to faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we get this initial moment of his birth, and now we go to the death of Samson, and we remember God is telling us something important here in the book of Judges that's bigger than just Samson. Look at chapter 16 now in verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Let's just be, be real clear. The scene here is not a matter of Samson versus Philistines. No, 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 no. This is a much, much bigger picture taking place. This is Dagon, the God of the Philistines, versus Yahweh, God of the universe. That is what is at stake in this moment. And so the Philistines, as I mentioned earlier, basically call together a massive keg party, and they're going to celebrate their victory over Samson and over the Israelites in this temple that has been built to their false god, Dagon. And the scripture says that they bring Samson out, basically to entertain them in whatever form. And Samson asks to be put where he can lean on the pillars that hold up the temple. And now the second and final time in Samson's life, he's going to pray. And he's going to admit, I'm, I'm weak. And he's going to ask God, would you give me one final time your strength to do what it is that you had called me to do earlier, and I, and I refuse to be a part of it. The issue of faith here is what's going on. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 actually summarizes this story and a whole lot of the guys and girls and judges in this powerful way. Hebrews 11.33 says specifically that Samson, through faith, was made strong out of his weakness. Through faith that he was made strong out of his weakness. I think this is probably really the first time that Samson actually ever exhibits real faith. And among other things, that encourages me, it's never too late to put your faith in God. I'm not telling you to wait and delay it. I'm saying it's never too late. And maybe you or someone that you know and you love and care about, they've reached that point in their lives where they feel like it's too late. The gospel says otherwise. The gospel says that it's never too late. That God's grace is far more powerful than any sin or mistake that you could make on your own. Samson is a weak man, but he's made strong by God's power. What's the bigger picture, though? Jesus was a strong man. Jesus is the God-man, fully strong, who for our sake became weak, 
The gospel is admitting that I cannot do it on my own, that I need someone stronger than me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to come and do for me what I could never do myself. And the gospel message is that God has provided that way of hope and of salvation. Look one last time at the life of Samson and see where it inevitably points us. This is verse 29 and 30 of chapter 16. Then Samson called to the Lord. Here's his prayer. And said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. Let's be clear. Samson died because of his own sin. Jesus was crucified because of my sin. Jesus died because of our sin. Samson's death would begin the deliverance of Israel. But Jesus' death and resurrection would bring final deliverance for all of God's people for all time. But Samson lived for himself throughout his life and never really was able to do anything or even cared about saving Israel. But Jesus lived the most self-sacrificial life of all time from beginning to end. His mission was to save his people. You know, Samson and Jesus were both betrayed by a friend. Samson is betrayed by Delilah. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. Both of them are handed over to a Gentile enemy who tortured them and mocked them. Both fought and died in their battle alone. Both died with their arms outstretched and both literally crushed the enemy of sin and of Satan. But on the cross, Jesus brought the power of sin and Satan to nothing. Amen? What Samson could not do, what you and I could never do, only Jesus could do. Jesus on his cross took away our guilt, took away our penalty, took away our shame, took away the power of sin and death that had ruled over all time until he arrived. When Samson dies, his story is over. But when Jesus arrives, he dies, but his story is not over. The story of Samson and its lack of resolution, the fact that it's just an unhappy ending, points us to the reality of Jesus, that Jesus died, yes, but three days later, he rises again from the dead. We do not follow and serve a Savior who is dead. We follow and we serve a Savior who is alive forever and reigns as King Jesus for all time, and we look forward to that moment when he will take us home to be with him. Scripture, again, in Judges 21-25, sort of summarizes the book. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges begs the question, who is your king? Who is your king? Who is in charge of your life? The good news of the gospel says, come, lay down your burdens, lay down your mistakes, Lay down the ugliness of your sin and take up salvation that Jesus has already accomplished for you in his death, arms outspread on the cross, and his resurrection and new life that he offers freely to all who will ask. 
And so maybe today is the day that you ask and say, Jesus, save me. Or maybe today is the day that you say, Lord, I have asked you to be my Savior, and yet I continue to stumble. I continue to fail in this area and in that. But Jesus, I'm setting aside my weakness, and I'm taking up your strength by your grace through prayer, asking you to be my Lord, my King, and my Savior. I'm broken, and I can say that with joy because you are a faithful God. Amen? Let's take just a moment. Let's go to the Lord right now. Let's pray. Let's admit our weakness. Call upon Him as a good and faithful and loving God.